so there's this game on Apple Arcade uh, that I thought was just for kids. You yeah, know, like it, it probably it's is called. I mean, it is, but uh, there's there's some surprisingly. I don't want to say adult content because that makes it sound like it's mm-hmm. you know uh, X-rated or yeah, sure you does. know something thereabouts. But like, it's it's tricky in that you know it's like a Disney movie where you're like, ah, oh, this is for kids, and then you're like, oh, there's adult jokes snuck in there. Like, all right, yeah. Um, it's called Sneaky Sasquatch, and uh, my son played it early on you know and you're you're a sasquatch and you sneak around and you steal food and you hide from the uh park rangers etc sneaky sneaky sasquatch kind of sounds like it also stars chris hansen (laughs) (laughs) um but it it, it, throughout the course of the game it gets more complex and you have to like go work jobs (laughs) uh and they just released an update uh and my son and i will play it together where you become a doctor. Well, one, you become an ambulance driver uh, Ooh, or, or a you know, junior paramedic. Uh, no, they actually use a you know paramedic. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, so you you're the first... one using ambulance driver then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I right. did. Uh, because that tends to be what you do uh, is you drive around in this piece. of. I mean, like, dude, they actually kind of nailed this because you get a first aid kit. You have a gurney, which you can leave behind. <laughs> yeah (laughs) in a hospital and you have to show up you have to apply first aid so you have to bring your kits to the scene oh wow (laughs) you have to find the scene and it's a you know big map um and i want everyone uh, to notice that right now the video game got it right you have to bring your kits to the scene yeah and you have to remember your gurney yeah Uh, and you have to drive around in a really junky ambulance that does not go fast uh no but the other part the other job you can do is you can become a doctor uh and there's like you can do lab draws and if you click advanced options on the lab draws they'll give you like the values that uh, really like they're like oh yeah their sodium was 135 uh their potassium was 4.5 and the game is called Uh, sneaky sasquatch yeah, it's on Apple Arcade. Uh, huh. It's uh, do, I, I, and the best part is, um, you have to treat your patients based on their complaints and your like assessment findings. Um, and if you get like, I mean, you have to go to like the pharmacy to get them pain medication and you know anti-inflammatory, you know anti-inflammatory drugs, etc. But the pharmacist in that game is a fucking narc. The minute you grab the wrong drug, yeah, they haul you off to jail. They're like, "You're stealing drugs!" Wow, <laughs> wow, <laughs> making it uh, complicated uh, oh, to advance in the like game. It. But uh, yeah, no, I uh, I laughed when I uh, I dropped a patient off at the hospital and I walked out and tried to get in the ambulance and uh, I was like, "Oh, the back doors are still open." I left my gurney in the hospital. I, that, that, uh, that's That's real a little bit. I was like, that is real. I've, uh, I have arrived on calls and then gone, oh shit. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Uh, but with that, let's start the show. (laughs) 
This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of uh, EMS 2020. Uh, yeah, this is a show where we review real out of uh, hospital calls. And you guys seem to like it uh, because we we surpassed 2 million actually a little bit ago. Um, but uh, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. I didn't wow. promise anybody. I didn't promise anybody. You Betrayal. said I should. Yeah, someone's gonna go dig it up and be like, actually, here's the thing where you said you'd do it. Um yeah. I, I don't I don't remember the shit I say. Uh but anyway, so there's that. Uh yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, we uh we're doing great. I uh, hope you guys are doing great. If you want your show, or God, I always say that. I say that all the time. <laughs> yeah, you too. Uh but yep. if you want your call to be on this show, then go ahead and check out our Instagram or our Facebook. Facebook is EMS20 slash 20. Instagram is at 20 em, mm, is at EMS2020 show. On the Instagram, there's a beacons page in the description, and on the Facebook, there is a pinned post. At either of those spots, you'll find a link to a uh, form. It's a form you can fill out, and that form will uh, give us a little bit of a little bit of info about your call. See if it's something that we really want to do, and if we really want to do it, we'll give you a call and we'll uh, we'll set up a little interview with you, and we'll get some details uh, figured out. Uh, so no, we don't just use the form to uh, be like, "All right, fire from the hip." That's the one reason we don't do that. Don't worry. So uh, all good there. Uh, yeah, and. Um, you guys have probably heard us mention Flightbridge ED uh, and how uh, lately they have been uh, featuring us on their uh, FOMED uh, portion of their website, along with other podcasts and other creators of content. We are one of their collaborative network creators. And uh, yeah, if you want good education, uh, that's what you do. Or apparently play Sneaky Sasquatch, one or the other. Uh, yeah. So no, you'll learn uh, everything you need to yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. With that, Spencer, what you uh, what you got? All right. Well, I have a call that was submitted to our online form mm -hmm. um, who I called and interviewed and away we go. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So today's call was given us, uh, given to us by an AEMT. I'm calling Penn. Uh, Penn started out on a righteous path, wanting to go to med school. Nice. Uh, but unfortunately they heard the siren call of EMS mm. and like so many other lost souls, they wound up here. Yeah. Uh, so uh, at the time of this call, they had about three years experience total, uh, two and a half of those uh, years as a advanced EMT and six months as an EMT. Um, they are working with Teller. Teller is a decade long paramedic with an extensive amount of experience working in a high call volume area. Oh, gotcha. All okay, right. Teller. Yeah. Teller. Yeah. Yep. All right. So uh, let's talk about the system that uh, Penn and uh, Teller are working in. Uh, this call takes place in Pickacard uh, County. Pick and, the crew County. On the, nice. yeah. and the crew on this call work for any card EMS. Gotcha. Uh, so we'll take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any card EMS is a hospital based EMS system operates with five cars throughout the county. Uh, there are additional ambulances that can be staffed by administrators and uh, voluntary call in uh, personnel. Uh, if surge is needed, uh, but otherwise five cars. Let me let me uh, take a quick moment to talk about surge. Uh, so surge is a term that um, has actually gained popularity. I feel like I'm hearing it more and more 
Uh, although the agency that Spencer and I used to work with used the word surge as often as some people use the word the or with, which I believe are two of the most common used words uh, in the English language. Um, yes. But uh, surge is basically when, so you have a normal call volume, right? And so you staff for that level. Well, sometimes call volume will get beyond normal. And so surge is exactly what it sounds like. Surge is the capability or rather the act of temporarily adding units to handle moments of high call volume um, and then shutting those units down when the call volume chills. Yeah, no. Uh, and that's, you know, wh- and it makes sense in systems where, you know, you you have limited units mm-hmm. or you just have, like you know, extremely high call volumes, but, you know, potential high call volume. So it, it works um, where, where you see it a lot is um, <clears throat> systems that have kind of a mix of like urban and rural. Yeah. Um, because th- those are systems that, you know, you have the population to support a higher volume, but not necessarily, um, but it's difficult to, cause you have to staff the whole area. Right. And so you have yep. to staff people where there's not a lot of calls and people where there are. So, uh, you have to, your staffing is, it has to be your, your staffing is set for an annual call volume. Uh, but there's often, there's the capability for it to spike throughout the year. And, uh, you're, yeah. yeah. So, and anyway. So to your point, this is a mostly rural area with several towns. Okay. Um, the crews are typically paramedic and advanced EMT. They work 12 hour shifts and their call volume is seasonal. In the warmer weather, the crews can run seven to eight transports in a 12 hour shift. But in the winter, the volumes drop. They range from zero to four. Um, gotcha. There is one hospital in this area. This is St. Holding Seven of Hearts Medical Center. <laughs> I love the names, man. They're just, yeah, you you never, you you never, um, you never disappoint. I mean, you did, you disappoint in a lot of other ways, but never like in this way. Yeah. Not, not where it counts. Yeah. No, where where it doesn't count. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it, so, uh, St. Holding seven of hearts medical center is technically a level three trauma center, but it lacks certain things like, uh, interventional cardiology, um, and you know, other, I guess kind of important features. Uh, if they do have ICU services, it sounds like they're very, very limited. Um, but good news about an hour away by ground is a level one trauma center. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't name it, but, uh, let's call it, uh, St. Ace of spades. There you go. Center. Yeah. So in this system, uh, EMS will transport patients by ground, uh, to, St. Mary or St. Holding seven of hearts medical center. Uh, and then they'll go from there. They get transferred out to the ACE of spades hospital, uh, either by ground or flight. And I'm imagining if they activate flight in their area, uh, if flight were available, then they would probably just bypass and go to the level one. But uh, gotcha. That's me guessing at this point. So, uh, because that would, that would make the most sense. Um, so because of this, this crew, the crews on this service do get additional training um, because chances are there's a chance that they're going on an hour drive with a very sick patient. So they yeah. get trained on ventilator management, uh, rapid sequence intubation, um, and they uh, IV pumps and drip medications, etc. Okay. Uh, so that they can be utilized for those critical care transfers. And in the case that they do have a critical care transfer, another medic usually gets to uh, hop in the back so that there's at least, you know, two paramedics working. Um, so, yeah, okay. uh, I, I kind of like that. Um, 
There is a volunteer fire department. Uh, they will respond to fires, cardiac arrests, and uh, significant MVAs. But most of the time, uh, if help is needed, it comes from other ambulance crews that are working in their area and uh, police. So Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep. All right. So uh, let's get into the call. It's a cold winter morning in Picard County. Uh, Penn reports that they started their shift by clearing the snow from the front uh, of their side of the ambulance bay before joining Teller for the uh, morning checks. Okay. After this, the crew go to uh, meet up with a another crew and go to a local eatery to make a uh, plate of food disappear. <laughs> Ooh, nice. Before your very eyes. I actually right? know that same magic trick. Yeah. 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 That's pretty yeah. intense. Yep. I'm often accused of doing that where they're like, yeah, all right, here's your, Hey, where'd your food go? It's gone. Yeah. (laughs) It's gone. Um, then they stop at a convenience store to uh, purchase coffee. Uh, so in actuality it was Red Bulls, but, uh, I'm taking, I'm taking Liberty because I'm going with a better drink. I had to write this. So Uh, it's coffee now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if Red Bull is a better drink or not, or if uh, coffee is a better drink than Red Bull. Sorry. I, I know what I said. Whoa. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, like, I know what you said, and I think you're wrong. Yeah, I feel, but I don't know which one's easier yeah. on the teeth. We'll have to review this after the call. Uh, no, no, no. I think we derail the show until I get the to the bottom. Of this. <laughs> it's what our listeners crave. That's right. Yeah. Uh, fun fact: it isn't. Um, anyway, well, <laughs> so, sometimes. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, all right. So, yeah, sorry, as, uh, yeah, as Penn and Teller enter the convenience store, they hear tones drop for an MVC, and Penn says, like, in that moment, they were a little disappointed because the last several calls that they'd gone on over the last few shifts have yeah. been lift assists or other really non-acute things. And they, uh, they're they in medic school at this time, and they kind of want to go see good stuff, good they calls. They want to save lives. Yeah. All right. Um, so when a possible emergency response drop, they're a little miffed because they're not up first. They are technically mm. the second unit up. Um, so they're imagining that the next call is probably just going to be that, uh, you know, toe pain. Yeah. 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 But dispatch magically appears and with a radio wave of their wand announces that the MVC has a report of CPR in progress. Ooh. And the first unit, that first in unit requests that Penn and Teller respond to the scene as well. Okay. All right. And some background, the location of this call is a residential area along a two-lane highway around an intersection. So, uh, Chris, what would be your thoughts as you respond uh, to this scene as the second unit? Uh, yeah. So, what's going to be going through my head? Yeah. Um, nowadays, I I would really look forward to this because, honestly, this is kind of all you and I do, right? We're always the second in. I mean, not always, but we're so often the second in uh, to a chaotic scene, and that's just kind of our role. And so I'd feel a lot more comfortable with this. But there was a time where uh, going in on scenes like this and kind of hearing like, okay, like we have CPR in progress. We need a second unit in would kind of get me nervous, you know, kind of get me a little bit uh, amped up. And so I think what I would be wanting to know on the way in as things get established is uh, I'd be thinking about when am I going to ask, okay, where do you need us? You know, how are we going to do that? And so uh, for me, 
I'm going to get ready to, as we start approaching the scene, uh, I'm going to make sure that I'm telling whoever is at the scene where I'm at. Like, hey, we're going to be approaching from the south. Uh, we're about a minute out. Where do you want us? And they can say, all right, you're going to come back. You're going to pull past the engine. Your your patient's going to be here. So what I'm going to be working on uh, is instead of trying to gather too much patient information, because that's going to be difficult because people are going to be busy, right? Uh, especially yeah. in, in a system like this. You know, people don't have all the time in the world to stop and talk to you on the radio. So yeah, what I'm going to be worried about is uh, where where am I going to find my patient? And that's that's the info I'm, I'm going to be focusing on. Instead of worrying too much about specific injuries and that kind of stuff, I'm going to be focusing on, all right, how am I going to find my patient? How am I going to find where I need to be? Yeah, I, I think you've identified kind of the, the key problem. And this is sort of where the, the nervousness comes in. Um, you know, like when you're first on scene of an MVA where there's like CPR in progress, my mind immediately goes like, okay, if this is an accident that killed somebody, then there is the potential that this is a very serious accident. And I'm, you know, and then you go to worst case scenario, like, all right, fuck, we've got a clown car, uh, filled with eight clowns. There are Mm -hmm. one of them is dead. You know, the, the others are rejected. And, uh, when really you have like one paramedic and one advanced EMT who are essentially the first people who are arriving on scene, there's too many patients, you know, the, the potential for an MCI and for chaos uh, oh, yeah. is really, really high. And when you're first in, um, you have a chance to kind of tame that by immediately going to, Hey, we need information. We need to, you know, start triage and figure out, who our most critical patients are and how we're going to get them out of here. But yeah. when you're second in, you're kind of, you you don't really get to the tone gets set already. If that makes sense. No, very true. So it becomes yeah, very, it, it become very difficult if it's not well managed uh, to turn that around. Um, and that's where I think my nervousness comes in because you're right. You come in here and you're like, well, it could either be good or it could be bad. Right. Um, you know, and we don't know, I don't, you know, how many, am I going to be put on triage? Am I going to be, you know, it's hard to kind of know what to expect. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, the biggest thing is, uh, if you're expecting this to be kind of a significant injury or, you know, significant, uh, scene where there's going to be a potential for an MCI, um, go in prepared to take on a role like triage or, you know, like if someone is drowning, offer to help with PIC because you get to come in kind of with fresh eyes. Oh, yeah. hundred um, percent. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that I've always noticed about flight is we kind of get this is going to sound like me tooting our own horn a little bit. But you know what? Toot, toot, motherfucker. Um, so I, uh, <laughs> but but I'm not. But we do we do kind of get uh, I would almost call it undue credit in a sense of like. Sometimes people attribute a lot to us. You know, I, I recently got to. um participate actually in, in two debriefs on two ca- on two calls. Yeah, we get a lot of credit sometimes for being good, you know, and uh, one one group of people said, yeah, when you guys arrived, it was like the cavalry came down and you guys were able to just kind of like right, right the ship, like everything was going to crap. And then like you guys came in and things just went better. Uh, and here's the thing. That's true. Not because we're really, really good. It's true because we get to kind of land and see what didn't work already, stuff that we probably would have tried, and now we just go the other way. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes there's calls, there's a left or a right to take, and I'm like, gosh, I don't know if I want to take left or right. Oh, they took left and it didn't work? I'm going to go right. And it looks like we just landed and knew what to do. We didn't. We just saw what you did and that 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 wasn't working, and we need to try something different. Um, But anyway, 
Yeah, uh, that's well, the, just... I, I think there's also, a, you know, it's like when when help arrives and you're like, oh, good. Somebody you know, like the pressure's not on me anymore. You know, it's like Very true. weird when the Very pressure true. wasn't on me. I felt like the scene went a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Everything went great when the pressure was suddenly taken off of me. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, moving on. Uh, these guys don't really have a whole lot of time to pregame because it's a three minute response for their ambulance to arrive. Um, so they arrive at a two lane highway snow along the banks of the road. Uh, nice. Police. There's a police car. It's shut down the intersection. There's also a like fire department pickup truck that's in the intersection. Um, and there is a first ambulance parked parallel to three vehicles and facing the direction of the hospital on the highway. Um, okay. So the first vehicle is a large pickup truck with some minor rear bumper damage. Mm-hmm. The second vehicle is a midsize sedan and it has a somewhat crumpled like front engine area but no Hmm. visible damage to the passenger compartment but they do notice that there is a broken back driver's side window on that vehicle uh but windshield is intact so you know um i would call this ems yeah like this is a like this would be a tragedy in my life because i don't want to deal with like the insurance and all of that and (laughs) having to get a new car but in terms of ems this is kind of a huh okay yeah not too bad all right yeah all right um and there was a third vehicle whose only involvement was that they called 911 and now can't leave um there are no occupants (laughs) visible in any of the vehicles but there are about 15 to 20 bystanders who are kind of standing around this area something's going on and additionally and here it is There's a person lying adjacent to the second car in between the ambulance and that car uh, who is having chest compressions performed by an off-duty EMT. Interesting. Um, Okay. Yeah. And there's also a nurse at the patient's head uh, who is holding C-spine. Well, good for them. Yeah. All right. So Penn and Teller park behind the first ambulance and uh, Penn briefly debates blocking the rear doors of that first ambulance so that the patient can only go in their vehicle. Like, Oh, sorry, I guess this is our call. (laughs) So fun, fun story. Way, way back when, uh, when ambulance companies were first coming about, that would happen. Uh, It used to be very cutthroat. A lot of ambulance companies were actually run out of funeral homes. And uh, there wasn't the organized response that we have today where there's county contracts and whatnot. You basically, you became certified in that county and you had a radio and you listened for stuff and then you went and they would. Competing ambulance companies would park behind the doors of other ambulance companies. That's a, that's a legit thing that used to happen. So anyway, yeah. yeah. All right. As they park, they can see that the first crew has grabbed their stretcher. Uh, they've grabbed a Lucas. They've got their airway bag and their portable suction and are just making patient contact. And... We have new people, so I will now give you the names of the crew of that first ambulance. All right. Write this down. Okay. okay. The AEMT Amazing Jonathan is the advanced EMT crew member. AEMT Amazing Jonathan. Got it. Yep. Uh, And Chris, they're an AEMT. Okay. That was... uh, I didn't figure that out. I'm glad you said something. Yeah. Uh, Chris Angel is the paramedic. Oh, God. I have actually (laughs) seen Chris Angel live, and it was an awful, awful show. I I don't care if we burn that advertising bridge. It was not. (laughs) It's not worth. It's not worth 50 cents. It was. It was awful. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, there is an advanced EMT student writer uh, on their crew who I'm calling Gandalf the Gray. Okay, so for really quick, so for wow, boy, we went from Chris Angel's shitty show to uh, a famous wizard. Uh, okay, so wait, uh, what was that? It was an AEMT student. So what is their uh, what is their scope of uh, practice? They are then? they are. They are to operate as an advanced DMT under the uh, supervision Watchful eye of, of Chris the, Angel. Yeah, Boy, that's Chris Angel. Yeah. Chris Angel's watching Gandalf the Gray. Yeah. Boy. Hmm. This is one of yeah. those where. Uh, all right. Cool. You know what? You know what? I I feel like we should change it. Is there maybe we turn no, it no, no. into date? No, 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 no. Let's let, let's keep it. Okay. Let's keep it. It's fine. All right. It's fine. All right. All right. So here we go. Let's as they approach. Chris <laughs> the AEMT amazing Jonathan is working on getting the Lucas device on the patient so that compressions can be taken over uh, by that. Chris Angel, the paramedic, has unzipped the patient's down jacket and lifted up the shirt to place pads on the patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Penn approaches, he sees what appears to be a 70s male, approximately 200 pounds, laying supine on the ground. The patient is wearing thick work pants, a down jacket, a long sleeve shirt underneath that down jacket, uh, work boots, etc. Uh, the patient is cyanotic, no obvious signs of trauma. They are unresponsive and not breathing. All right. So as Penn arrives at the patient's head, the RN holding C-spine tells him to get a C-collar and a BVM out. Uh, the BVM magically appears from the kits and is attached to portable oxygen. Um, okay. So that's already out. So Penn quickly retrieves a C-collar from the proximal ambulance and returns. Uh, as Penn now takes over the spot at the head, they are going to manage the airway. The patient's airway is noted to have some emesis uh, in it. So uh, they use okay. the portable suction and uh, they clear it. Uh, an OPA is then placed and the C collar is put on all in a very short period of time. Um, right. You might be going, well, what was Teller doing? When Penn was doing this, you know, putting on this show for us. Well, Teller was uh, uh, all of this. They are, were actually preparing the stretcher and the back of the ambulance that would receive the patient. Um, so they okay. were they were also working. Um, and Penn recalls thinking as they're you know uh, you know bagging this patient, it seems really weird that this person would have died from this accident. Gotcha. So thoughts. So here are my thoughts so far. So far, um, I do kind of like this this scene. Um, so I know we, everyone has a story about nurses on scene being problematic. That's not I, I just want to clear something up. That's not always the case, by the way. There, sometimes yeah. nurses can be sometimes any medical professional who's not an EMS that's on that's on a scene is problematic uh, because they don't really understand how we, how we run things sometimes. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, the one thing that I really like about having nurses on scene is that uh, or really any other medical professional is oftentimes there's someone that you can, they're more, they want to help. And 90% of, uh, of having someone useful on scene is someone that's willing to do stuff. And so oftentimes they are. Yeah. And so in this case, it's like, Hey, can you hold C spine? It's simple, but it is super, 
super necessary. And almost every medical professional at some point, if you said hold C-spine, they'd kind of know what you mean. And yeah. so, uh, but anyway, and it also sounds like, you know, she's like, hey, grab a, grab a C, you know, grab a BVM, get some stuff. And, you know, that's, that's all correct. Um, what I, what I'm thinking so far is I kind of agree with Teller. I mean, given I'm not there or not Teller, but Penn is I'm not there. But, you know, when I look and I'm like, hey, this seems weird. This person would, would have died from this accident. Um, that's a good thought to have in your head because a lot of times we think like, okay, trauma codes don't work them for too long. But if there's not a lot of trauma, consider another reason for the code. Uh, and so, uh, good call on Penn's part there. Uh, and the other thing too, is, you know, they're focusing on the code at hand, uh, you know, which is good. So, so far, so good. I'm just kind of curious, uh, as to where this goes, but I would say this is a patient that I would definitely, uh, work, especially given, uh, uh, what Penn has noticed, which is the fact that, uh, Hey, the mechanism here doesn't seem to warrant, uh, the outcome that we have. Yeah. I, I think the only other piece, and I don't know if this was established, um, and Teller isn't a great spot to figure this out is, Hey, are there, is there another patient that we're overlooking w- because this code is happening? You know, like this oh, is very the distracting good. Very good. code. Um, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to throw everyone on a code and then realize like, Oh, there was a person with, you know, severe back pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's well, just stuck. No, not doing anything. Yeah. Well, here's, here's my, my other question that it comes back to is have they contacted, um, is there, is there been a, and I apologize if I missed it. Has there been a setup command yet on this scene? Have they contacted anybody or did they just kind of run into their patient when they got on scene? Uh, so they went to the patient directly when they got on scene. Yeah. Cause they, um, they saw the group of people and went that direction. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So they really haven't contacted well, the and people who asked them to be there yet. No, that's the first. So that's the first ambulance crew. Oh, so, I thought Penn and Teller were second in. Yeah. So the first ambulance crew requested them and they basically arrived simultaneously. Uh, gotcha. 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 Okay. Yep. Okay, so, so the th- first that, crew that makes is, sense then. All right. is putting on the Lucas and the monitor. Um, and the first crew being Penn and Teller. Nope. The first crew being Chris Angel, Chris Angel and, and Gandalf. The okay. AMT gotcha. amazing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. So everyone's focused on this one patient. Nobody's really talked to anybody else so far. Got it. Okay, cool. Yep. All right. And there's, and there's really no other responders on scene at this point. So there is an off-duty EMT. Um, and this is actually well, where right, we but get he the- was doing CPR. Yeah. And this yeah. is where we get the history of present illness. Um, cool. So he was parked on the opposite side of this intersection and they witnessed the second car rear end that first truck. Gotcha. Right? So they got out of their vehicle, crossed the road just to kind of, you know, hey, are you all right? Sort of a thing. Um, and when they got to the driver's side of the car, they noticed that the patient was unresponsive in their seat um, and the doors were locked. So they break the rear window on the driver's side, unlock the car, and then open the driver's side door and assess the patient who's determined to be dead. They're pulseless. They're not breathing. So they get pulled from the vehicle and CPR is started on the road. Um, And I believe at this point they were kind of like, yeah, no one else is injured. The driver of the truck is fine. No one else is really involved. You know, um, that sort of piece there. Um, But going back to the code, uh, the Lucas now finishes its uh, cycle of compressions. And as the patient's on the monitor, a rhythm check is performed and the patient is found to be in V-fib. The plan is to defibrillate at 200 joules. And okay. by the way, I imagine it going something like this. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we have VFib on the monitor. Now watch as I press this button and make it <gasps> disappear. And then there's just thunderous applause like, ah, ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. Right. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as the defibrillation happens, uh, Penn doesn't get to see what happens with the rhythm because the Lucas is restarted. And at this point, the decision is made. Let's get the patient into the back of the am ambulance. So Gandalf the Grey and the AMT Amazing Jonathan work on getting a scoop stretcher attached underneath the patient so that they can be lifted over to the gurney and brought into the uh, ambulance. Penn continues to ventilate the patient at a rate of 30 to 2. So that's 30 compressions, two breaths. Uh, they report that the patient was fairly easy to bag with the OPA and that C collar in place. Uh, I did ask, like, hey, did you actually see, like, were you getting visible chest rise? And they said, like, because of the patient's down jacket, they weren't able to yeah. appreciate any chest rise, but they felt like the, the they were delivering effective ventilation. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So suddenly uh, that question for you, though, does the Lucas make a so here's I, I openly admit to our listeners and to you, uh, I have not been on a lot of Lucas scenes. Does mm -hmm. it give a pause uh, for a 30 to two ventilation rate? Yeah, you can have it do continuous or you can have it do 30 to two. Gotcha. Okay. Sounds good. Cause I'd be like, that'd be another reason you can't visualize chest rise is that they're getting the, uh, they're getting their sternum <laughs> pushed just, in by a Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, uh, it's at this moment, suddenly the hand of Gandalf the gray appears in between Penn's leg mm. and that hand works to secure the head portion of that scoop stretcher. Um, I, I will say <laughs> in this moment, <laughs> Maybe the better thing to do is to say, hey, man, can you move aside so I could connect this versus reaching between <laughs> the legs of another EMS provider on scene and yeah. in, like risking inadvertently, like that. touching some genitals. Uh, <laughs> Avoid that awkwardness yeah. or make a new friend. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, better. Yeah, it's uh that's not the way I, you want to start that <laughs> there. I mean, there's some situations where it's like, hey, man, you got to work around me. But uh, it happens. for the most part, you just say, hey, I need to connect this. And, uh, you know, if someone's not doing something, you know, patient critical at the moment, then yeah. uh, they, they should move. Mm -hmm. Nice. <laughs> or get their permission to be like, no, right. just go between my legs. Uh. Well, that's, that's why I say, can you move? Because there are going to be situations where you'd be like, I, I can't really move and, and do the thing that I'm doing right now. Can you? You're gonna, I'm sorry. It's awkward. You're going to have to go around. All right. So uh, the patient is scooped over to the stretcher, moved into the ambulance. Uh, and by the way, uh, to your point, the RN was pretty quickly moved aside. Um, they stayed on scene and asked if they could help. Um, and they were thanked for their assistance and uh, dismissed is kind of a mean sounding word. But like, hey, thanks. No, we we got it from here. We're set. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was they, nice didn't, the they didn't. You know, they didn't railroad this. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't, they, good. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Okay. There you go. Railroad and rod from our episode with Ashlyn Odell. This is how you help out when you're off duty, yeah. right? Just yeah. like this person. Yep. <laughs> so in the ambulance, the second rhythm, a second rhythm check is performed and it shows V-fib. The patient receives okay. another shock, but this time at 300 joules. 
Okay, All gotcha. Right. Um, do we know what kind of monitor they have? I'm, it doesn't matter. I'm just curious. Uh, I, I don't. I don't okay. know. If anyone's no. really curious, because uh, like, huh, that seems like an odd jump from 200 to 300. Just remember, um, it depends on the manufacturer. Uh, and a lot of times the manufacturers will have different jewel settings. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, say hey, for the first shock, do 200. There are some, sometimes I've had one where it's like, hey, all shocks, 200. Yep. Sometimes you'll stack. Uh, I am not an expert as to why that is. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that'd be a good RSI thing is find somebody that works at Zoll or at Phillips and have them just explain like, hey, explain this to me. <laughs> like, right. Why is yeah. this different? So anyway, but yeah, yeah. All right, cool. All right. So now we're in the ambulance and let me give you the configuration. All right. In the airway seat is Chris Angel and next to them is the AMT amazing Jonathan mm-hmm. Gandalf the gray has positioned themselves to the left of the patient where the IV IO supplies and medications are kept on the right side of the patient is pen. And this is near the monitor. So Chris Angel tells Gandalf to get a right tibial IO established. Uh, this right goes tibial? quickly. Okay. Yep. Uh, successful. And a liter of fluid is hung. Uh, the patient is also given one milligram of one to 10,000 epi and 300 milligrams of amiodarone. Just kind of together? Uh, yeah, one after the other. Yep. Okay. Um, Penn works on getting more than just the pads on the patient and getting like the actual leads and stuff on. Mm-hmm. Um, Teller runs, Teller on the other hand, runs to their ambulance to receive a pressure bag because they attach the liter of fluid to the IO, but they need a pressure bag. And uh, this was ultimately an unnecessary task because uh, as they're like, where's the pressure bag? Ah, where is it? They leave before Penn goes it's right here it's been right next to me it was in plain sight the whole (laughs) time time. (laughs) (laughs) how do i know you're gonna say that yeah that's awesome yeah so yeah uh where are we at chris where are you at on this uh what are you thinking uh so far so good if a little bit unconventional here and there um so yeah just um not necessarily unconventional but just um it's they are not doing it wrong, but they are not organizing the code the way that I would necessarily uh, organize uh, the code. So, how would you um, skin this cat? Uh, I would skin this cat. I love to do one drug every two minutes. Okay, so most of these drugs, the idea is that they need to be three to five minutes apart. And so, one way you can do that is just every three minutes give both drugs. And so, when I say both drugs, you're almost always giving Epi as a presser. And then mm-hmm. usually you're going to be combining that with an antidysrhythmic, either amiodarone or, or lidocaine. When we're talking about uh, refractory V-fib, refractory meaning V-fib that just keeps coming back, which which is what we are. The definition is that it comes back again. And in this case, it came back again. OK, so uh, they are giving uh, both at once. There is nothing wrong with that at all, except that you kind of have to keep track now of two time frames. Uh, as opposed to if you do every two minutes, well, two minutes is your cycle of CPR, right? Hmm. So if every two minutes you're giving either Epi or Amio, uh, then the drugs still remain three to five minutes apart. They remain four minutes apart at that point, right in the middle of that. Sure. Uh, and all you have to do is keep track of your cycles and what the last drug you gave was. And that's it. Uh, versus having to keep track of two minute cycles and also every three minutes, because those aren't always going to line up, right? You yeah. know, so like every second drug and it's just, uh, it's more work, but it's not wrong. I will 
I will point right. that out. Yeah, and and as for the IO, uh, I'm not a huge tibial IO fan. Um, they're they're solid um, in in terms of like placement, um, but I I prefer the humor head IO, and um, I'll I'll touch on that again later uh, as to why. But for now, yeah, I mean the call seems to be on the right track. It's not the way I would skin the cat, but so far, I mean they're they're skinning the cat. I'm just uh, I'm curious what they're going to do with uh, airway uh, so far. And yeah. uh, see where they're going, because uh, right now they're just BVM and OPA, correct? That's that is correct. Yeah. Yep. So I would I would want to. My, my next thing is just to make things easy, uh, you know, because getting a good mask seal is, is harder than we give it credit for. Right. It, yeah. it actually is very difficult. Uh, and if you have a limited number of people on, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's it's easier if you have two people, one person to hold the mask on the face and one person to bag like that makes it a lot easier. But if you don't have that many people, then that's an extra person and an extra person can make all the difference in a code. So uh, I would want to get at least a, an SGA placed on this patient. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm curious to see where they go. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, how would, how do you feel in terms of uh, chaos to control? Do you feel like this ratio is uh, pretty solidly in uh, the control realm or do you feel like uh, there's chaos? Mm, I, I don't really. It doesn't feel chaotic to me. Uh, it feels very well controlled. I think people are focusing on what they need to focus on. Um, I haven't heard a lot of. Uh, I, I would say like PIC moves, you know, I haven't heard anybody kind of like summarize with the team where things are at. Um, it kind of seems like everyone's jumping in right now, which is great because they all seem to be jumping in correctly and doing what they need to do. Um, I just haven't seen a defined PIC role. So if it's there, I haven't heard it. Um, it hasn't come across. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so my only concern I think is without a PIC, if things take a turn or something changes, that's where these things tend to kind of go off the rails, right? Yeah. Uh, Cause right now everyone's jumping in where they need to be. Everyone kind of knows what's going on. Um, but what's going to happen when you get a pulse back? Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's kind of my question. Yeah. I, I think um, in terms of, you know, when I, when I took the call, I, I believe Chris Angel, uh, the paramedic for that first in unit is yeah. running the uh, running the show. But I don't I don't know. I, I don't think it was one of those where it was like, hey, I declared myself like I declare PIC. Uh, sure. sure. <laughs> I declare bankruptcy. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> yeah. you don't necessarily have to declare yeah. PIC, um, but you do. But um, it, yeah. if everyone seems to be recognizing you as PIC, you don't necessarily have to declare. Um but I always do anyway, <laughs> not yeah. always, but uh, I'll, I'll often sit there and say, uh, Hey, I'll be PIC uh, yeah. when it's, when it's necessary. Um, so yeah. anyway. Yeah. Well, I guess then that sort of leaves the audience going like, Hey, so the, the sounds pretty solid. Uh, where, yeah. Why, why, why are we doing this episode? Where's the chaos? Where is, where is the fuckery that I've come yeah. to know and love from EMS 2020? Um, much like that pressure bag, it's been in front of you guys the whole time Ooh. and you probably failed to see it or to know. Yeah. So brief side tangent. <laughs> What is a down jacket? Oh, no. <laughs> I know exactly yeah. where this is going. Precisely yeah. where this is going. I've been there. Sorry. Go ahead. Let's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a jacket filled with soft feathers of some avian hell beast that is enjoyed by many because uh, it keeps you warm. And it's it's got a lightweight feel because it's filled with light fluffy feathers oh the no. jacket has cells that are 
filled, filled to the brim with soft, small feathers, which if cut will release those feathers out into an environment. Um, like it, it almost like one of those endless handkerchiefs that just keeps getting pulled out of the sleeve. You're like, ah, oh, it's got to end now. No, there's still more in there. It's coming yeah. out. Yeah. Nice. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Mm, yeah. We don't know who made the first cut, but the left arm of the jacket and that long sleeve shirt are cut a- cutting or aw- cut away, uh, yeah. which allow better access to the patient's arm and uh, chest and small soft feathers slowly start to creep into the scene. Going back to Penn, he's gotten the SPO2 probe on the right arm and he has placed a non-invasive BP cuff on the right arm over the patient's jacket. Yeah, which by the way, that's just a normal BP cuff if anyone's yep. curious. That's that, that's what we're we're normally used to. The reason we say it's a non-invasive blood pressure, uh there's not an invasive blood pressure cuff, but there is an invasive way to measure blood pressure. Cuz I, I always think as it means non-invasive blood pressure and then space yeah. cuff. And a lot of people uh I think are like, "Oh, it's a non-invasive blood pressure cuff," as opposed to the invasive blood pressure cuff. There isn't an yeah. invasive blood pressure cuff, but there are, uh, if someone has an art line, for example, you can measure blood, uh, an measure arterial blood pressure line. Correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Using my, using yep. my fancy lingo, my CCT Oof. lingo yeah. there. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah. 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 Uh, when I, and what I mean here, like when I, I'll say like, you know, uh, if it's if someone's going to auscultate a blood pressure where they like actually put a steth you know a blood pressure cuff on the patient's arm and they listen yeah well, I call that a manual blood pressure because you're actually manually doing the yeah. work when it's the non-invasive blood pressure uh, essentially that for me uh, and I, maybe I'm wrong here because yeah. y- your point is well made uh, that's the auto cuff that's yeah. the thing that's going on and going like no no I-, I think I think technically you're wrong because that's the, you know, I mean just just going off what those words mean I think technically you'd be wrong but I openly admit when you said NIBP I I immediately went autocuff and didn't even think about the difference until you just now brought it up yeah. so I, I I feel like it they're synonymous with each other I mean technically Probably. non-invasive blood pressure they're both non-invasive right and they right. both take yep. blood pressure right but uh no I hundred percent with you I, <laughs> I heard the same thing when you said NIBP. All right. Um, by the way, they don't read very well over jackets. For they don't. Those going like, huh, that. Uh, Especially that not stick like, down jackets. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, uh, at the airway, the uh, AEMT amazing Jonathan is bagging the patient while Chris Angel prepares to intubate the patient using a glide scope and a 7.5 tube. From Penn's perspective, the preparations were done right. They had a smaller size tube available. They have a backup device. They have suction ready. They have their end tidal CO2 connected to the monitor and set to go. And they had already prepped the tube holder behind the patient's head. Um, Good prep. So just before the next rhythm check, Angel decides that they're going to go in to uh, try and intubate the patient. And they are surprised when the patient bites them because they say, oh, they just bit me and Charlie the bit me. <laughs> the patient's eyes are noted to flutter. I, I've heard. Uh, I don't know for a fact. Uh, intubation is uh, an extremely painful procedure. So uh, it's a good sign when your patient who's supposed to be dead uh, and is getting CPR done on them goes, oh, <laughs> tries yeah. to eat you. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. So CPR is paused and the patient is found to be in a VTAC with a pulse rhythm. Uh, so 
They decide they're going to synchronize cardiovert at 150 joules. The patient after that, the patient remains unresponsive, but now has a gag reflex because they tried to put the OPA back in and he would not accept it. Okay. Um, Penn isn't sure if the patient was breathing on their own at this point, but they do know that the AEMT amazing Jonathan was bagging the patient at about 10 per minute. Um, and Chris Angel tells Penn, hey, you know, I need you to get some vitals and check lung sounds. And they uh, discuss with Teller about the, this will now be an RSI. Okay. So uh, Gandalf the Grey works on getting an IV in the left arm. And uh, at first it does not pass because, you know, it shall not pass. <laughs> but the second time uh, uh, you know, uh, nice. it, it works and he, you know, it's like, fly, you fools. All right. <laughs> so Teller had already drawn up the next dose of one milligram epi. And uh, so they they had that ready. And instead of the 150 uh, being pushed uh, for their yeah. second dose of amiodarone, it's now 150 milligrams in 150 milliliters uh, administered over 10 minutes because they went with the you know, uh, cardio version um, per their yeah, protocol. Because, uh, yeah, it's, it's VTAC with a pulse at this point. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So uh, using a 20 drop set, uh, they administer that. The concentration's 150 milligrams in 150 bag, and they said that's about three drops per second. Actually, hey, really quick, yeah, uh, they they electrically cardioverted it uh, with a synchronized cardioversion at 150 earlier, right? Yes, I'm guessing that did not work. Uh, I'm not sure, um, and uh, unfortunately, Penn wasn't sure either. Well, yeah, that's the way the cookie. That, that's the problem with having a real show about, uh, you know, doing things uh, for, without, without having real calls is that sometimes, man, memories fade. Yeah. It happens. Yep. So, um, so if uh, I, so this might be one of those where, hey, we've defer you know, we shook we shocked this patient out of him and uh, the post code drip. Um, mm -hmm. I've I've heard of places doing, hey, if you shock him out of it. The you know do your drip uh, at one milligram uh, a minute of amiodarone. Sure. Um, and I believe I've seen protocols, and maybe I'm misremembering where they're like, yeah, just do the 150 over 10 minutes. You're you're uh, not misremembering. You and I had that protocol when we worked at the, our previous ground ground agency. That's exactly yeah. what it was. Is you would uh, if you converted somebody on amiodarone, you'd hang up an amiodarone yeah. drip. If you converted them on lidocaine, you'd hang up a lido drip. If you converted them without any antihistamine, you'd do a lido drip. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And so the the objective here is that well, we'll talk a little bit more about yeah. anti antihistamines uh, in these. Um, so at that, the end here. So I, if if the patient was converted from that drip, this might have been along the lines of that protocol where they're like, all right, hey, we're, we have to give our amiodarone drip. And their protocols may have asked for instead of, you know, one milligram a minute, it might have said, hey, just give the 150 over 10 minutes. But yeah. Uh, and and just to just making sure things are, are correct on, on my whiteboard, they drew up and have one milligram of epi ready, but it was not given. That's just basically if he codes again, yes. I have it set. OK, yep. perfect. Yep. All right. So Chris Angel works on drawing up rock and ketamine, which are their protocol for RSI. And by the way, mm -hmm. they went with a. I said the patient was, you know, approximately 200 pounds. Uh, they went with a 100 kilo dose. So now they're approximately 220. Um, it's funny how that happens on in real life, too. Uh, yeah. You're like, yeah, they look about 200. And someone's like, well, I think they look more 220. And you go, yep. 
Yep. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes the math easy. So the patient's yeah. going to get 200 milligrams of ketamine and 100 milligrams of rock. Yeah. And the thing you remember, guys, you're not going yeah. to hurt them doing this. Yeah. If they, yeah. If they look like they're 200, you round them up to 220 and adding a little bit more just to make math easy. You're not going to hurt them do this. You're going to make your call easier, which is beneficial to them. So yep. anyway, go ahead. Yep. Um, and uh, meanwhile, the feathers are swar- starting to swirl around in the ambulance. Uh, so the problem is the uh, non-invasive blood pressure, the autocuff doesn't read over the jacket. So Penn releases the patient's right arm uh, from that, from the Lucas hold and yeah. uh, becomes incredibly ill as the hand drops. And I quote, sack taps him. <laughs> no, there's yeah. a lot of accidental genital touching uh, in this conversation today. <laughs> well, I just, remember there was that. a near miss earlier. This one, yeah. this one yeah, was a, <laughs> a little more violent. Yeah. Oh, so my uh, gosh. after no doubt swallowing some of his own, call it the sneaky Sasquatch. <laughs> nice nice well done uh so pen has to cut the patient's right jacket sleeve and shirt uh so that they can get the blood pressure cuff on that arm um Mm -hmm. yep so uh by the way the patient has an 18 gauge iv placed uh on that other side and the leader of normal saline was moved over to that site so that the amiodarone could infuse in the io all right. Okay. So uh, here we go. Level of consciousness. The patient is unresponsive. Vitals. Blood pressure of 72 over 30. Heart rate is 130. Sinus tack with mu- uh, multiple PVCs via their forelead. Uh, the SpO2, it reads very badly. Um, you know, 50, so 60. No poor reliable plath. reading. On yeah, there. no reliable gotcha. reading. Um, there is no end title. I'm assuming. There is no end tidal CO2 reading yet, um, and respirations are, mar- are marked down as 12 a minute via the BVM. Uh, mm. Lung sounds were listened to and are reported to be clear and equal. Okay. So, uh, they're, they're getting, I mean, there's no ETCO2 because they're not innovating yet. Yep. Um, so there's nothing, I mean, you can read ETCO2 off, off of a BVM, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but, um, but they don't have it on there yet. Uh, and at, at this phase, Probably not super critical. I always love to have it because uh, it records your respirations accurately on the monitor. So it makes charting yeah. easy and also makes sure you're actually aware of, of, of what you're doing. And especially in a code situation, I love to be able to see what the ETCO2 is because that gives you a, a lot of information about uh, central perfusion in the body. Um, 100%. Which is, which is a big deal in codes. Um, but let's chat a little bit about getting prior uh innovating right now because uh you and i have talked about it on this show many times you and i both have the same opinion is that um the success of an innovation is is all more about the prep work than anything else um because even if it goes wrong and you miss if you prepped appropriately you can really minimize the detriment to the patient uh so far the prep seems good though i haven't heard any specific things like hey we have an oxygenation goal or you know we're going to try and bag for three minutes but it's going to be hard when you don't have an spo2 because one of the things we like to do is you know my whole thing and if you've listened to the show long enough you probably might roll your eyes oh we're going to hear it from him again but good 
because uh, I don't want you to forget it. Um, the big key to success, or at least to minimizing the detriment to a patient when you're intubating is denitrogenating the lungs. Okay. And there's no way to monitor that in the field. SAO2 only monitors the oxygen that makes it to the blood. It does not tell you the air mix in the lungs. But if you can sit there and bag somebody at 100% FiO2 on your, uh, with your BVM, which is basically just Crank, crank the O2. Don't, don't go to 15 liters. Go to as high as you can. Uh, I can explain that. I can explain why later. Uh, let me make a note really quick to explain why later. Uh, FiO2 versus volume. Okay. So, you know, you crank that as high as you can. And the main reason is this, and that is that, uh, even if the, pa- if the patient's not taking a breath, but blood is still flowing, blood's going to continue to go pull oxygen from the air volume in the lungs. And if that air mix is 2080, like room air, uh, then there's not a lot of oxygen it's going to be able to pull. But if you make it 100%, it's going to be able to pull a lot of oxygen and people will not desat uh, for a remarkably long time. In a, a healthy adult male, you're looking at like eight minutes above 90%, which is insane. Uh, however, once you get past that eight minute mark, it, it yeah. falls off precipitously. Um, yeah. But still, uh, that's what you want to do. Uh, however, this patient, in my opinion, before we go in for this intubation, uh, we need to do a little bit more resuscitation because uh, that blood pressure is really, really low. Uh, mm. I would I would probably like to use a push dose presser or uh, something like just add like a, I, don't, I don't know if, if they have uh, so, push dose available. No, that's a really good but. point. Um, and, and so addressing the oxygenation piece, I would assume that, uh, you know, despite the, the bad reading, um, and it, the bad reading might be related to the blood pressure. Uh, I think it hundred percent is because your body's going to clamp down. I mean, ba- it's, you know, it's like not going to perfuse the finger. Yeah, if we're bagging the patient already, then that's that is you know as long as the oxygen's up high enough that we probably will not improve that any further unless we put in like an you know uh, an NPA or maybe we consider mm-hmm. doing some uh, delayed sequence innovation. You know, uh, to to try and you know I, whatever um but yeah the the blood pressure is the one at this point that would make me go ah we should really try and get that up before we do that because we know that right. the paralytic is going to relax blood vessels the large sure. ones because there's musculature on those you know large blood vessels uh that also get relaxed um and yep. uh that can drop the uh the 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 patient's pressure. Um, so yeah, uh, they do not, unfortunately have push push dose pressors and no. Penn isn't aware if there was a discussion about the patient's blood pressure prior to, uh, the ketamine getting pushed. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know, the, the best reading they could get for oxygen was, uh, 70% with poor pleth. And they said that they had noticed that the patient had patient's color had improved to some degree, um, Good. which might be, you know, related to the fact that his heart is actually trying to circulate blood on its own. Yeah. 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 Well, going uh, from a, going from a pressure of zero to 72 systolic is still an improvement. You know, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a huge improvement yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and probably enough to perfuse the brain. So yeah. And also they've been bagging for a while. And also another thing to consider as you do your innovation attempt, that vagal stimulus uh, can also slow down the heart rate because uh, you're putting a lot of pressure uh, in the uh, oropharynx, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Uh, can cause that, uh, that, ver- that vagal stimulus. Um, and one thing I also want to point out is he has a blood pressure of 72 over, I didn't write down the diastolic 30. Um, 30 yeah. 72 over low, uh, and, and he's achieving that with a heart rate of 130 and that's as high as he can get. So yeah. slowing down that heart rate with a vagal response can really dump this guy. And one of the things to remember is that 
I know we like to focus on moments of hypoxia being an issue. Moments of hypotension, also huge fucking issue, even if they're short moments. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I would like to, I mean, again, if, if they don't have uh, push dose pressure available, then that sucks. But that is, that is what I personally would be doing. Yeah. Is giving this guy a push dose pressure. See if I can't get that blood pressure up yeah. uh, a little bit higher. And, and this might be one of those where, uh, you know, uh, you you try for a rapid fluid infusion and then mm-hmm. you say all right hey uh while we're doing this let's get you know norepi primed on the uh you know to to administer uh because uh we need this pressure up it's it's important yeah so anyway um but here we are uh the uh, the only other thing uh, outside of the patient's color improving is that the patient exhibited what what was described as small jolts that sounded to me like uh, myoclonic jerks. Um, but otherwise, they are still unresponsive with no purposeful movement and uh, that stupid gag reflex. So ketamine is in rock gets pushed and uh within a minute uh the bbm is moved away and the aemt amazing jonathan removes the patient's c collar uh chris angel goes in yet for yet another attempt but they quickly comment that the visibility on their screen is very poor uh, interesting oral suction is briefly attempted but it does not change or improve the view thinking that maybe the screen was uh was smudged from their first attempt. They, uh, yep. they pull it out and, uh, to try and wipe out the distal camera of the glide scope. Um, okay. the glide scope is removed and doing so reveals the problem. One of the billions of down feathers blizzarding oh, around no. in the back of the ambulance had nestled itself like that quarter. Your uncle found behind your ear, uh, yeah. right onto the camera lens of the glide scope. Uh, oh, so wow. th- there are feathers <laughs> fucking everywhere. Uh, oh, like, yeah, no. the, it's, the feathers are inside him now. <laughs> like, oh, gotcha. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's hilarious. Uh, so they remove it, uh, and the intubation attempt, uh, that follows is successful. Um, good deal. I, yep. Uh, and everything is happy. The, the C collar will remain off for the rest of the call. Uh, but good news. Lung sounds are confirmed. There's no epigastric sounds. They have an end tidal CO2 of 55 millimeters of mercury. Blood pressure did drop 70 over 35. The patient's, uh, is, uh, 128 beats per minute sinus tack with, uh, PVCs. And the patient is being ventilated at about 12 per minute and the SPO2 still not reading, but yeah. So gotcha. with the patient's airway secured, it's time to move. Uh, Penn takes over ventilations. Chris Angel and Gandalf the Gray remain in the back as well. Um, actually, it would be uh, Gandalf the White, right? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. At this point, because yep. uh, yep. they've graduated yep. in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the AMT amazing Jonathan uh, goes up front to drive the uh, that their ambulance and Teller uh, goes to their ambulance so that they can follow up to the hospital. Teller uh, does so completely silently the entire time. The whole time. Yep. yep. Uh, their total scene time was 21 minutes and their transport time will be roughly five minutes. So the hospital is notified uh, right away about the trauma entry with uh, ROSC. Um, and we have one set of vitals taken in route during that time. Um, and by the way, there were other things that happened. They uh, did a 12 lead, uh, you know, post ROSC 12 lead. They did do a CBG check. The value was remembered as within normal limits. Um, oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. 
So, uh, yep. Uh, heart rate remains at 128, but the PVCs have resolved by the time they uh, are pulling into the hospital. The end tidal CO2 is 51 with the rate, uh, respiratory rate of 12 supported by the BVM. Uh, SpO2 is 88%. And we don't know what their blood pressure was because uh, this happened. It cycled right as they were like moving the patient with gotcha. the monitor drips and all it's of that a five stuff. minute transport. Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. Yep. Um, so our crew enters the uh, ED slick with uh, code sweat and covered in down feathers. Uh, they yeah. turn over care to the large ED uh, who responded uh, and they spent hours, hours cleaning out the back of the ambulance. Uh, so that is the call minus the, uh, (laughs) minus the follow-up, but I'm going to save that bit for, uh, after we review the call. All right. Uh, so, uh, here is a quick end of call summary. So, uh, our first unit in, uh, was it pick a card County, uh, with, uh, any card ambulance company. Yep. Uh, unit one is dispatched to a motor vehicle collision, an MVC. Uh, oh, hey, we had a listener point out uh, that uh, a legitimate reason to call it MVC. And I, uh, in the past, I have ranted about MVCs and been like, why do we call it that? It's dumb. Uh, you know, it's just people. You know, everyone's like, well, because it's never an accident because it used to be called MVA for motor vehicle accident. And I'm like, yeah, no, it is. Because by your logic, it's like, well, there's always a bad decision leading up to it. Yeah, no, there is. It doesn't mean it's not an accident. Like every accident has bad decisions leading up to it. Think of one that doesn't. Uh, but I'm not saying there aren't. I'm just saying it takes a while. Uh, but, a, <laughs> but a listener pointed out that, yeah, but like MVA could sound like CVA. It could sound like a lot of different things. And uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, because there really isn't anything that sounds like MVC. And uh, OK, props, credit. Yeah. So, yeah, just so you guys know, my rants are not undefeatable. Um, <laughs> they usually, I mean, they're close. Yeah. They're close. I mean, I thought you were wrong the whole time, but, uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, TXA helps clotting. So, unit two, after <laughs> unit one is dispatched to the MPC, unit two is summoned, uh, do the reports of cardiac arrest on the scene uh, by unit one, I believe. Uh, Penn and Teller uh, arrive. Uh, Penn and Teller open show. Uh, sorry, Penn and Teller <laughs> arrived to a, uh, I, I guess I'd say mild in, you know, in EMS terms, yep. uh, car accident to find a 70s uh, ish male in cardiac arrest with CPR uh, going on outside of the vehicle. And there's like a gathering of, uh, of people. Uh, the patient is placed on a, a Lucas device. They get a C collar put on. They get defibrillated because they're in V fib. Uh, and then they get moved to the back of uh, the ambulance. There was a very helpful nurse on scene who at this point is told to just go fuck off. No, I'm kidding. Is told to, uh, <laughs> is told to, uh, that their help is no longer needed, but, uh, in a friendly way, uh, they get an IO, uh, in the ambulance and the patient has a down jacket and, uh, someone discovers why cutting a down jacket is terrible, uh, because they do it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, feathers are everywhere right after the patient gets defibrillated. And uh, so anyway, uh, right. So patient gets defibrillated again. Uh, then the patient gets a push of uh, one milligram epi, 300 milligrams am- and uh, of amiodarone uh, through the IO. Uh, the patient does end up getting a uh, another line placed in 18 gauge uh, in an AC. And uh, then they decide they're going to try and intubate. Yep. And uh, Chris Angel goes for it. Uh, but then the patient bites Chris Angel. Yeah. Also, uh, which apparently point- doesn't like Chris Angel's show either. It's like, nah. yeah, no, I don't blame him. Good on the patient. Should have been harder. Um, 
Which, by the way, to the real person that Chris Angel in our story represents, I apologize. Um, Spencer made the names. I don't think Spencer's ever seen Chris Angel live, so he 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 knew not what he had done. Um, but anyway, uh, the patient is now in VTAC with a pulse. So they do a synchronized cardio version, uh, 150, uh, 150 joules for VTAC with a pulse. That happens. Um, don't really remember if it works or not. Uh, uh, I think it a, did. It must have worked because the patient, the next you know, check, the, the yeah, that's vitals, true. there's sinus tack, so... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it must have worked. Um, yeah. So synchronized cardio version happens. It must have worked. Yeah. So uh, the j- the down jacket gets cut uh, some more, and uh, more foul feathers fly free in a furious flurry. Ooh. The crew work on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the crew work on uh, <laughs> intubating the patient, uh, but discover that one of those feathers uh, did a sleight of hand trick and managed to find a way to block the camera of the glide scope. Uh, but despite that brief ro- roadblock, uh, they clean off the feather, they successfully innovate the patient, uh, and they uh, transition to transporting, which is like about a five-minute ETA. Uh, but even in that five-minute ETA, they uh, they end up calling this a trauma alert with ROSC. Uh, they then check a uh, blood sugar, which was normal. They do a 12-lead, and they arrive uh, looking like they were tarred and feathered. And uh, apparently, there is some more follow-up to come later on, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, on the tarred and feather thing, like that, thankfully, this patient wasn't like smattered in blood because uh, my down jacket incident was a very bloody trauma patient and it stuck to everything everywhere all over the patient and looked ridiculous when we brought the patient in. Uh, so if you <laughs> ever like have a trauma surgeon, Mr. Flamingo. <laughs> yeah. If you ever have the trauma surgeon, like as you walk in before hearing anything goes, just go, what is that? Uh, yeah. And like starts p- picking the feathers off your patient without a gloved hand. I should <laughs> mention. <laughs> these bloody feathers and i'm like those from the dad jacket they're covered in blood he's like Ugh. i'm like jesus you're the surgeon aren't you supposed to be clean yeah anyway yeah. so all right it's it's so, the glitter of ems you'll never get it off <laughs> yeah all right so spence let's uh let's talk about what we want to cover yeah um, uh and so i think the cool discussion here is going to kind of focus around causes of arrest right yeah 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 there, i think you there's know, uh this is an interesting one because we showed up for one and then uh, wound up a sleight of hand, it ended up being mm-hmm. something different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll cover their their uh, their interventions, and uh, and then yeah, maybe we can talk more about goddamn fucking down jackets. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, some of the interventions that I do want to specifically talk about. I also want to talk about the decision to make this person a trauma entry, mm. uh, and I also mm-hmm. want to talk a little bit about synchronized cardioversion. Why do we synchronize cardioversion when we have VTAC with a pulse, but not when we have VTAC without a pulse? Uh, and yeah. the reason is not clinical. Um, so yeah, I'll uh, all right. I'll, I'll I'll defer to you to start us off with. Uh, why don't we talk about the causes of arrest first, and then we'll get into yeah. the gritty. So th- this is one where we hear you know as we're we're getting dispatched to this call, we hear you know it's an MVA or MVC, um, and then we hear you know uh, it's a uh, there's you know, CPR being performed and immediately I, uh, you know, as I did and Chris did during this call, we go, okay, this is a significant trauma situation, right? Because mm-hmm. significant trauma is what kills people. Um, right. It's the, and, and so when we show up and it's a, it, it turns out that it's really more likely a medical call. Uh, Cause when you think about it, it's like, why else would this guy rear end this other car and be dead? 
you know, when, when the, the mechanism of injury really shouldn't have done it again, it's, you know, mild in terms of EMS tragedy in my own personal life, but mild in terms of, yes. you know, what, <laughs> yeah. what we're going on. So it's one of those where it's like, this is probably one of those situations where the dude had a heart attack, you know, prior to slamming <laughs> into the back of this other car, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and that's probably what killed him, which takes it away from a trauma code. And th- the distinction is somewhat important because there are different goals with trauma codes in trauma codes. Sure. CPR is not the priority The in trauma codes. Yeah. Uh, it's actually, you think of the acronym hat, the things that you need to, you need to treat, Above CPR, because those are the things that are killing the patient. Uh, right. You need to treat severe hypotension. So like if, hey, if they're bleeding out, they need a blood pressure. They need. So you know, hypotension is the agent hat. Yep. Uh, there may be airway. Their airway could be blocked. So you need to open mm-hmm. the airway and make sure that they are able to, you know, get a. You are able to deliver breaths and. They need treatment for a potential tension pneumothorax. Those That's are the, th- the and those are the three things that really should be you know like in, our, in in our service our medical director goes like I don't I don't care about CPR that right. won't that won't help do those specific interventions uh, you know and that is what's going to if they can be saved that is what's going to do that focusing on CPR uh, it, it isn't going to save them now he, here's the thing. I would also I would say this. Don't not do compressions. Uh, and here's kind of my logic uh, behind that. Um, one, uh, your protocols probably want you to do compressions no matter what. Um, but uh, especially when we're talking about a call like like this one, um, having if you have someone to do compressions, have them do compressions because, hey, maybe the cause did start out as medical and that's how we wound up where where we are. For sure. Um, but. Uh, you know, so that's something there. But if you're sitting there and, you know, it's just you and your flight nurse, for example, which, by the way, it, that that does happen. I have been on scenes. I, I've been on one in three years where we were uh, at the patient's side before anybody else was. Um, but if it's just you and and your nurse or just you and and your partner and it's and it's trauma arrest with strong indicators that it, that it's trauma, uh, I would I would focus on addressing, uh, like you said, the hypovolemia airway and the potential for attention pneumothorax before I worried about having a dedicated chest compressor. Yep. uh, Compressor. So while I I would never tell you to not do CPR on on someone without a pulse, uh, what I would say is uh, consider that the priority needs to be in trauma arrest, the H-A-N-T. Now, so, because see, yeah, CPR is not bringing them back. Yeah. Now, it's not even going to do the holding pattern thing, actually. It's not even yeah. going to do that for you. So it's doing yeah. nothing for you. It, but anyway. Yeah. But when it's a medical code, CPR is of utmost priority. Um, 100%. Ki- kind of above all else. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, minus the like, hey, get a defibrillator on them because, you know, the, the best time sure. to defibrillate is early. Uh, yeah. But really, you know, having someone start CPR because the circulation, you know, there, there needs to be a, a pressure achieved within the body through those compressions that will make the other interventions work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is why, you know, like a lot of, a lot of places have just gone like, do not stop compressions. Every second we stop compressions means it's harder and harder. It becomes, uh, 
incredibly difficult to actually resuscitate the person. So, um, and, and that's really sort of why it matters when we show up to calls like this, where the mechanism doesn't make sense. You know, it's like, well, it's technically a trauma, but like, eh. Yeah, like, and that's sort of where you know they wouldn't have been wrong to to do, you know, like, like you know, like, hey, let's needle decompress him, I guess. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, uh, I think they made the incredibly right call of going like, yeah, th- this seems medical. Um, this seems medical. It does. Yep. And. And that's why I said earlier, because compressions are so imperative in medical codes, that's why I said earlier, if it, even if it's a trauma code, you should still have somebody doing compressions in the event that you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, because if you are wrong, it's detrimental uh, to the patient's health. Um, it, to me, it doesn't really change whether or not I'm going to be doing compressions. It just changes the priority of things when I have minimal people. Um, like, for example, I, I would make sure that somebody could relieve attention pneumo in the evidence of significant chest trauma before I made sure someone was available to push on the chest that's Dude, been totally. traumatized. Yeah. yeah. So um yeah. anyway. After uh circulation, then you make sure that the airway op- is open. Um and right. that you know you're able to address their breathing. Um yeah. and we're yeah. mostly considering adult patients here by the way, because just yeah. remember in in your very young, young, young little little nugget people uh that we call pediatrics, um Especially like infants. Or pediatrics. Uh, yeah, <laughs> pediatrics. Um, yeah, uh, then uh, then you're really working on B and A on uh, on those ones because yeah. they're uh, usually respiratory causes for codes. But generally speaking, yeah, in your adults, it's uh, circulation, airway, uh, airway breathing. So yep. yeah, there is that. The, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the down jacket in the room. No, yeah, the down jacket yeah. in the room. Um, so oh, gosh. Down jackets. Uh, there is... We don't anticipate it. You don't learn about it. There isn't a chapter in your book uh, called how to deal with down jackets. Down ja- but yeah. there should be. There should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, the trick to down jackets, if you have to cut them, uh, do it outside. Don't do it in the back gotcha. of an ambulance. And that's yeah. that's actually it. That's that's all I have for you on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you, if you got it. And here's the thing is you're going to have to cut them. I mean, because they're super thick. They're obstructive. You got to get them off. If you're able to. If you're able to actually get them off without cutting, great. But it's so hard to get a jacket off without sacrificing C-spine in the process. Um, here's my recommendation, though. If you're going to cut them, uh, cut. Uh, you can you can cut along the zipper itself uh, if there's a zipper to get the to get the front open. If you can't like get the zipper down, if it's jammed or stuck for some reason. Um, and the other way to cut them is find uh, seams and then cut just to one side uh, of the seam. And what that'll do is that will leave feathers on. So, so the seam is like a dam, right? Yep. yep. And so everything on one side uh, will have will, will have feathers, but the other side won't have any feathers. It'll just have a few feathers. And so that can kind of allow you to control the direction. And so what you would want to do is uh, you go to cut along the seam on the side. If, if it has seams on the side, it may not. Um then you can uh, cut that to where the uh, open side is uh, coming from the top. So the opening is facing down. So what you do is you would cut. So if the patient's supine on their back, you cut just and and you have a seam going up the side to the armpit. You cut just anteriorly to that seam as close as you can to it without cutting the seam itself. 
uh, and that will keep the opening of the feathers facing down and away uh, from everybody uh, and your patient and will make it much more manageable. Yeah. What you don't want to do is just to cut willy-nilly in the middle where you have feathers flowing from all sides of that cut. Um, so anyway, yeah, use yeah. use the seams, but understand it's it's still going to suck. Or, <laughs> so, or yeah. best yet, just don't cut them. Get to the hospital and then have the trauma <laughs> people then. yell at you <laughs> about the jacket and then start cutting it off right in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just and then have them decimate it. Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that, that won't make them happier with you, but it will be nice. to see. I mean, it's a good story. So, like, yeah, then yeah. We, he yelled at me. So uh, yeah. we feathered him. Potential system problems. Potential system problems. Uh, well, I mean. Gosh, calling it a problem uh, is hard, but some systems just don't have the the same resources as, as others. In this case, it sounds like the fire response isn't uh, necessarily universal nor plentiful. And in calls like this, where you're going to need extra resources and you have to pull extra transporting units, um, I see that as a problem for the system, but not necessarily a system problem that impacted this specific call. For Does sure. that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. You know, yeah, so uh, I can see that, yeah, as a problem for the system. But uh, in this particular case... Um, I didn't see any point at which there was a glaring system issue that impacted the patient care with the exception of not having a push dose option. Yeah. Um, I really, I strongly believe that push dose pressure options need to be standard care across every agency. And although it's getting more and more common, um, we still hear of agencies that don't have push dose options. Yep. So, um, and basically what a push dose options when it comes to epi for the most part, you know, without push dose, you have like two epi options, right? Well, three, you have an infusion. If you're following ACLS, uh, you have just pushing one milligram for a code. Uh, and then you have your anaphylaxis dosages. What a push dose epi is, if you're not familiar, is it's basically a very dilute, uh, solution. So, you know, one to 1000 is typically what you use for intramuscular or subcutaneous injections. One to 10,000 is the concentration that you use for uh, IV injections, like during your code 99s. And then your push dose is actually a one to 100,000. And what it comes down is it's 10 to 20. It's a, it's about usually the way I dilute it is it comes down to where it works out to be 10 micrograms per CC yep. of epinephrine. And so what you do is you have that. So you, I just take the, uh, the code epi, the one to 10,000 in its prefill. I use a three-way stopcock, uh, shutting off the outside. And then I just take a 10 CC flush, push out one CC of saline, draw up one CC of the one to 10,000. And then that's your dilution yep. right there. And that's, that's how I do it. That's how a lot of people do it. It's how I was trained to do it. Uh, and push dose epi works fantastically because i remember originally I'm like that's such little epi is it going to make a difference and sure shit it, it does. does yeah it, <laughs> yeah it, it actually it makes a big difference really 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 does <laughs> and so yeah so you can get that blood pressure boost in there so yeah having a push dose option i think is probably the yeah. only system problem that i would say had an impact yeah. today well and I, I to emphasize your point earlier it's like yeah when you have when you tie up two of your units uh it's not a system problem in this one uh mm -hmm. but uh, it's a system problem when Jim calls with chest pain while these yeah. two units are tied up and then he has to yeah. wait for, you know, a, a, a farther away unit to come. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. No, um, absolutely. So pregame. Hmm. Uh, I didn't I don't remember hearing much about pregame on this one. Um, I know we talked about the things you and I would think of. Yeah. Um, I don't think there really was a lot of time to pregame. Uh, they had yeah. three minutes in route. 
Um, and, uh, I, I believe there, there wasn't any discussion. It was more along the lines of like, mm-hmm. all right, cool. We're going on a call. Oh, we're here. Um, but yeah. you know, uh, I think the things to think about are what we talked about early on. So, uh, go back to that section, rewind yeah. back and, and listen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, arrival and, and, and assessment on this guy. Um, so the arrival, I, I thought the only thing about the arrival was that, uh, like you had mentioned, the, everyone kind of focused on the one patient and didn't I didn't really hear any conversation about like, hey, are there other patients here? Because this is this is a motor vehicle accident. There's potential for other patients. You know, have we have we really assessed that? And I, I don't recall that that ever being part yeah. of the conversation. So and, I would add that as part of the arrival. Yeah. And it, it, it might have been, you know, and it just wasn't, you know, uh, part of, uh, you know, like when I interviewed uh, Penn, uh, you know, it was one of those pieces that just didn't get conveyed over somebody else had already done it, et cetera. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and so we were focused solely on, on Penn's piece, but if it didn't, yeah, that's a big deal. You, uh, you, you could, you run the risk of, you know, it's like, this is the distracting injury. And then there's yeah. somebody else who also is, you know, injured on scene that we're, we're missing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Um, as far as the assessment goes, I didn't see anything that I, that I really didn't like. I mean, I think the assessment itself was, Fairly straightforward, you know, I mean, okay, dude's not breathing. Uh, dude has no pulse. Let's let's work from there. Uh, and the ongoing assessment um, was good. There was a point where someone got bit in the ambulance and that's how they realized the patient was no longer coded. Um, but, yeah. uh, but, you know, like assessments were done. What I appreciated about this call is when they were doing the assessments, they also did the things that kind of come with experience in that they didn't really, like Penn didn't tunnel vision, which was good in the sense that Penn was able to be like, okay, wait a second, like, Here's my patient in front of me, but what else goes into the, into an assessment? Well, you got to assess the scene itself. That's sometimes almost as important as a uh, as uh, the assessment yeah. of the patient. And in this case, it's like, hey, like there's not enough trauma mechanism here necessarily to cause this, or at least yeah. it's it's suspicious. And that's that's really important. And that's a good part of the assessment. That's not, you know, it's not on your list. It's not on your NREMT list anywhere. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not sitting yeah. there being like, all right, airway, breathing, is the car that bad? Circulation, you know, like that's yeah. not, no, that's totally. not on there. Uh, so anyway. Yeah. And and to that point, uh, it, you know, I did ask like, hey, was there, you know, steering column damage, you know, a, a, any signs that there was more trauma in the car? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because uh, those would all be pretty good indicators that like, OK, maybe there is some piece to this and none of that was present. So, yeah. Oh, what did their 12 lead show? Uh, I, I don't recall. Um, they, I believe okay. it was concerning for STEMI. Um, but uh, and this is one of those where timing sort of matters, because like if you take a 12 lead right after somebody's, you know, come back, <laughs> uh, chances are it's going to look pretty fucking wonky. I mean, the patient yeah. should go to a cath lab anyway, but uh you know, or a cath lab hospital anyway, because, uh, you know, yeah, sure. They're, they're sure. they were in VFib and, uh, you know, that's another point. Like it's I it's pretty rare from my understanding for trauma codes to be VFib. Um, most trauma codes are PEA. Uh, yeah. So that's Correct. another one that sort of points towards like there may have been a medical thing. And I immediately think yeah. of, you know, heart attack is as yeah. one of those. So anyway, well, and VFib can occur with chest trauma. Um, you know, uh, oh, yeah. you yeah, hear yeah. about kids getting hit in chest with, with, uh, with baseball. There's the, um, 
I can't think of the football player's name, but we did a special on, was it Damar? Damar Hamlin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Damar Hamlin. Yeah. We uh, check out our YouTube channel, Rapid Sequence Information, where I talk about Damar Hamlin and we talk about um, Kamosha Cordis, uh, which is where you get a strike in the chest and your heart stops. Uh, it's a, it was a fun thing to do. I had a lot of fun doing that one. Uh, but yeah, go check out our Damar Hamlin video on the uh, YouTube channel at Rapid Sequence Info uh, on YouTube there. Yep. Um, so with that, let's kind of briefly talk about, uh, not necessarily, we already talked about trauma risk versus medical in terms of what we clinically do. Um, but let's kind of talk about, you know, they made this person a trauma call, you know, they said, or you know, did whatever their equivalent to a trauma entry is, uh, cause Hey, it's a trauma call with Rosk. And let's kind of talk about that. I want to talk about that briefly. And I think, I think that was a good call. Now here's the thing. Mm. I believe that this is a medical patient. Yeah. Um, that if I had, if I had to put money, this is a medical patient. But we've talked about on this show so many times. Your job isn't to guess right. You know what I mean? Like mm. it's not. You, okay. Uh, let's see. How about this? There's no reward for being 100 percent right. In other words, like if you were like, hey, like I'm not going to call this a trauma because the mechanism was low. I think it's purely medical. And then you go in there and it turns out you were right. You don't get a Jolly Rancher for that. Nobody's like, oh, yeah, you won the secret Starburst today because you guessed 100% <laughs> correct. Um, what you should do instead is, ex- I think, do exactly what this crew did in the sense that, like, hey, I strongly believe this is medical. I would bet every last dollar this is medical, but I've been wrong before. So I'm going to call it a trauma, a trauma code that we got Rosk on. And then I'll tell them the details because what you don't want to do is presume that you're right, no matter how right you probably are. You don't want to presume that you're right and then go in there and then they're like, hey, you guys missed this chest trauma or you missed this part. And now we're not ready. We haven't called the trauma surgeon. We didn't prepare the trauma suite. We didn't do any of those things. Now we're not ready. And this patient's behind the ball. So uh, understand you're not perfect and just kind of go on this assumption of like, hey, look. It's probably a medical call, but let's get the trauma team uh, ready just in case, because that is a lot easier. It's so much easier to go in there and be like, hey, guys, uh, we call this a trauma. I believe it's probably medical. Here's why. There wasn't a lot of mechanism. However, here's what we have. And then that will leave them to decide uh, what they want to do. And nobody is left in a lurch. Yeah. The worst the, the worst thing there. Someone actually I, I did a ride. I recently had a ground transport uh, at my flight job. And we were kind of talking about this very concept there. I was working with a new paramedic who also listens to the show, by the way. So, uh, hello. Um, we're, I was talking to, she's a new paramedic and she said, uh, she's like, yeah, like I'm, I'm new at this. And I'm like, we were talking about making, uh, stroke activations and whatnot. And I'm like, Hey, here's the thing, like overactivate, don't, uh, don't underactivate. And she goes, yeah, I mean, overactivations cost money, underactivations cost lives. And I'm like, that's a good way to put it. That's hmm. a very good way yeah. to put it. Uh, and she's right. And so I'll pass that on to everybody else because that's a good piece of advice. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're going to cost people some money to pay some doctors to come in, but uh, do it uh, because underactivations are far, far worse. Yeah. Uh, no, so, I, yeah. I, because I, 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 I can see myself doing falling into that trap um, and I probably mm-hmm. have. And uh, I, we'll see later on in this call uh, the trap that I would have fallen into, but. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I could see myself going like, Hey guys, the mechanism isn't significant. Um, this is a medical code. I don't, yeah. we don't need to make a trauma activation out of this, but you, you make a solid point, which is like, Hey, yeah, it, the, tr- there wasn't trauma that likely caused this, like the, a medical sure. event caused trauma, but 
there was still some trauma. Like, even though it's like, yeah, hey, it's mild. Like, there yeah. was still a car accident that was, you know, like, was involved. Sure. And I, you know, I had he love tapped the other, you know, like come to a stop and then just kind of kept going. Cause he passed out and his foot slipped off the brake. You know, like then there's no damage. Sure. Then that's one where it's like, I, okay, I'm not going to make a trauma, but like, Hey, if the hood's crumpled up, I should probably consider that this was a trauma call or that there my is some. For, yeah. yeah. My line for this guy. And here's the other thing too, is we talk about this all the time. on The show is uh, people can have more than one thing going on and they almost often always do. Yeah. Um, and here's the other thing too, is, this guy's 70 years old. Uh, if his airbags deployed yeah, and hit him in the face. And I mean, I don't know if he's on blood thinners. I don't have any meds. I mean, take a 70 year old on blood thinners and hit him in the face with an airbag. Who's, you know, I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah. Do his, it. His Everybody code, go he, do he, it yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come here, Gramps. Uh, but anyway, EMS, so. Chris Fixton on EMS 2020 told me to do this. <laughs> yeah. But Here's the thing, yeah, you take a 70-year-old, you, you hit him in the face with, with an airbag, and he's on blood thinners. Um, yeah, maybe he coded, and that's why his airbag went off, and there's not a lot of damage to the car. But, you know, very likely that guy could also have a brain bleed, even sure. a small one from that. Now, not all brain bleeds, by the way, uh, not all brain bleeds are ultra lethal. In fact, a lot of times uh, they'll be like, yeah, someone has a small subdural. We're going to keep them uh, for observation, see if it reabsorbs and takes care of itself and then discharge them without any surgical intervention whatsoever. Yep. Uh, that that happens. Um, but uh, again, you know, this guy was in a car accident. Uh, the other thing, too, is if he coded before he got into the car accident, he has no ability to defend himself whatsoever. Mm, yep. So you don't need the same amount of mechanism to cause an injury to this patient because he's a floppy body. That's just going to bounce off of whatever's in front of him. He has no ability, ability to brace. Um, I know we talk about how bracing adds injury. Well, it adds injuries in the sense of broken limbs, uh, which uh, you prefer a broken limb over a broken face, right? Or yeah. a broken head. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this guy has no ability to do that. So the mechanism required to injure this man is not uh, as great as it would be uh, to someone who didn't coat and then hit something. So anyway, all yeah. things to consider. That's why I would still make sure there's yeah. uh, trauma was ready. Well, then let's talk about, uh, you know, that that first that first intervention then uh, as they roll up, you know, the, the nurse is holding C-spine, um, you know, because this guy was pulled from the vehicle and, it, you know, there's a mechanism uh, for trauma. And she's like, hey, go get a C-caller. And I, I, I'll be honest, I would have said, uh, you know, like C color BBM is like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get the BBM. I'm going to take over airway. I'm, I'm not going to bother with the C color right now. Um, you know, like it would just not be on my priority list. Um, but you, what, what are your thoughts on that piece? Uh, putting the C collar back on. Uh, well, get, just getting a C collar on, you know, right get, away. Oh, getting a C collar on them, uh, in the first place. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, especially if you're going to be taking it off to manage the airway later on. Uh, you know, when you and I started this, like we were kind of trained to believe that uh, there is one thing keeping all people from death. And it's the sea collar uh, because everyone had that one story. Oh, God. How many times did you hear the story of, well, one day my lieutenant pulled up to a scene. This lady was sitting in her car and she turned her head to say hello. And that was it. She was yeah, paralyzed. Yeah. Every person I've ever met has some version of that story, which leads me to believe it's not a real story. Yeah. Um, but because statistically speaking, as it turns out, sea uh, collars are almost never necessary um, on on patients. Um, but uh, that said, you know, when they are needed. They're needed. You know, when when someone has a uh, a cervical uh, fracture, you need to keep that in line. Um, and so, gosh, I mean, I would put one on 
But the reason I would be putting it on is the same reason I recently did. I recently ran a, a GSW to the head call and innovated the patient and uh, asked for a C collar to be put on. And people kind of look at me like, it was an isolated shot to the head. And everyone's kind of like, why C collar? And the reason I like C collars on innovated patients is it stops, uh, it prevents neck flexion and stuff when you're moving the patient. Sure. And neck flexion is one of the ways that you can um, dislodge a tube. Uh, because the, uh, commercial, the commercial securing device, while definitely is better to put on than not, it secures it to their face and the distance between their face and their, uh, and their vocal cords can change depending on neck flexion. And so if, uh, the neck flexes, it'll actually have a pulling action on that tube. And so it's, uh, if your tube's kind of shallow in there, or if you have a larger patient, uh, where they're just, their their uh, vocal cords are just plain deep. Uh, yeah. because you know everyone's anatomy is different then yeah there's potential with neck flexion to dislodge your tube and so that's uh that's kind of my thought for putting a c-collar on is it keeps the neck in in place yeah for for an innovative patient no, and, so after you've innovated yeah and and you know the, the, i think the thing is is like currently the standard of care for trauma patients uh with suspected you know spinal injury is hey you know you put them on a a firm surface and you put a c-collar on um there there mm. is a lot of movement away from that but it isn't yet sort of uh ubiquitous um and i think there's a good point like in patients who are able to you know like their neck hurts they're probably gonna you know uh brace themselves pretty well you know if you lay them flat and they're like yeah it hurts uh maybe a c-collar isn't warranted in that situation you know for some patients but in an unconscious patient who really can't uh protect their their head and neck um, it makes or tell little, you, yeah, or tell you like, yeah. yeah, actually my neck really hurts. Uh, then yeah, it may, it makes sense that, uh, you know, that a C collar would be put on this patient. Um, okay. yeah. Yeah. I also remember 70 years old. There's a chance for uh fragile bones, osteoporosis, yep. that kind of yeah. stuff. So, um, yeah, totally. I, but again, I think, I don't think like taking the C collar off during the RSI procedure is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, it didn't get put back on. And I, you know, like when I took the call, uh, I kind of went, eh, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, then that's where I would have been wrong too. Uh, so yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, you brought up earlier on, uh, jumping into the next big intervention that they did outside of, uh, defibrillation, which nice work, uh, mm -hmm. tibial versus humeral IO. Yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. The tibial IO is great in terms of that. It's, it's very secure, uh, and a good tibial IO does, does flow. Okay. Um, but I've noticed in, in my experience that it just takes a little bit more pressure, uh, to get that, uh, to get the tibial IO, uh, to work. And so I really prefer the humeral head IOs, uh, humeral head IOs, uh, there, a lot of people believe they're harder. I mean, your target is not as prominent as the tibial tuberosity, which is that flat spot on your tibia. Cause that's, that's actually very easy to find. Um, but they flow like champs. I mean, it's almost indistinguishable from IVs, uh, at times. I mean, I recently had a call where we had an IO and a 16 gauge IV and yeah, the 16 gauge IV flowed better than the IO did. Um, but they both flew, they, they flew, <laughs> but they both, they both flowed great. Uh, so it, uh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, humeral head IOs. Uh, the problem with them, though, is the landmark is a little bit harder to find. And if you have someone with a lot of like shoulder mass, uh, it, it makes it even harder to palpate landmarks, you know, beneath all that shoulder tissue. Uh, so that makes it difficult. Um, but 
the other downside to them is if the patient's arm is abducted, uh, in other words, moved away from their body, it brings the insertion side of the needle up closer to the acromion process. And then that can just pry the thing out. Uh, also, just if they have thick shoulder muscles and there's even a little bit of movement, it can just get pried out. Uh, so it's important once you get the humeral head IO, because you, you, when you place a humeral head IO, by the way, you want to make sure their arm is flat down by their side uh, and secured. And then you place the IO and then you make sure their arm uh, doesn't move. So that's uh, that's kind of the downside. And then the downside on top of that is if you want, if you decide you want to get an IV after you've gotten an IO established, uh, it kind of negates that arm a little bit because if you try and manipulate that arm to start to start a an IV, it's you could you could pull the IO out. Um, yeah. So it's just it's something to be careful of. Um, personally, I place my humeral head IOs uh, almost at a. 90 degree uh, lateral angle uh, from the side straight in as opposed to the 45 and up angle. Uh, you need to do what your protocols tell you to do. However, uh, the reason I do that is because I received training from the guy who uh, who invented the uh, easy IO gun. Uh, he's based out of Texas, uh, but one of my FTOs when I first joined on with the agency I'm at now uh, knew him and did a video conference for our entire call or for our entire uh, Neo class. And uh, yeah, he kind of walked us through how he designed it and how it was designed to go in. And it was only through, uh, you know, getting things approved by the FDA and getting input from other uh, clinicians that they changed uh, the insertion method from how it was designed. Uh, but the next cool part that I got to do was we did a cut down on a cadaver and then we placed the IO uh, and we got to see, uh, we got to push fluid into the IO and then literally watch the vasculature coming out of that, uh, bone inflate, you know, and just nice. like, yeah, fill, fill with fluid. It was, uh, it was incredible to see. Um, but the reason I like to place them laterally is it just brings them farther away from that, uh, acromium, uh, the acromion process. And, uh, it's, um, it's just more stable and they just stay in there. So yeah. that's. That's why I like placing them there. Yeah. That's how the thing was designed. Uh, yeah. So um, there's that. So I, I think there's a there's a solid point. Um, you know, in, in this one, one of the pieces is like, hey, you know, his arm was tied up on the, you know, attached to the Lucas device. Um, and so, and, and additionally, it was a, you know, they felt like, yeah, it, it's like they had this in their in their scope, but it was they they tend to do tibial IOs because it's in a less crowded area. There's often a lot of people up by the head of the patient. Um, yeah. But one thing that uh, is come under, um, you know, is up for, I guess, more evidence needed is that they're finding that tibial IOs were not a, like during the ALP study, for instance, they found that tibial IOs didn't seem to correlate well with getting ROSC. Yeah. Uh, humeral head IOs and, uh, of which there were very few and, you know, proximal IVs really were the, the pieces that were associated with more success. And the thought yeah. is that, Hey, you know, in a, your body is probably not getting, you know, like it's not pulling, uh, blood. It's not, you're not getting that circulation down from your tibia back to your core, uh, as well as you would from, you know, say like your AC, you know, antecubital area. Um, 
So yeah, that is, I think there's a, there's another benefit there to going with a more central location. Uh, and again, that's, that's something that, you know, I, I heard being discussed, um, by doctors from a, you know, on a different podcast about, uh, you know, and it's not one that's actionable. It just, it's, it's one of those things where we're like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if this is true. Uh, so it needs more study, mm-hmm. but, um, I, humoral head IOs, uh, provide more central access they do uh flow better and uh yeah they you know, do. so I, I i get it um but if you you know i i would prefer a humoral head io over a tibial yeah. io but uh yeah uh other downside humoral heads is that when cpr is in progress uh just be careful people's hands uh, i have accidentally stabbed another responder with an io gun in the finger uh or in the side <laughs> of his hand while uh while going for uh while going for it because i wasn't because i i was yeah. holding the gun in my hand and palping with my left hand to make sure I could find the right spot. Yeah. And I just didn't realize that I had, uh, when I moved it away, I just, I moved it. The place I put yeah. it was in his hand it, and, and then I pulled it back and, out and put it in the patient. And, so, then, uh, and then you, <laughs> and then you lightly brush their genitals by reaching under the leg. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one other thing I want to clarify, Spencer mentioned the Alps study earlier. That was the amiodarone lidocaine placebo uh, study to see which one works better in a code. It was not a study specifically to, uh, designed around determining the efficacy of different uh, IV access, uh, which is why Spencer kind of added that little caveat in there is that uh, it's important to note that findings in uh, findings that are not uh, things that you find out in studies that the study was not designed to measure uh, tenuous evidence uh, at best, and that can lead you astray. But uh, it's usually a good indicator that more research needs to be done. Yep. Um, so anyway, just kind of something to to put out there. Uh, don't cite the ALP study as finding this as a conclusion. It didn't. That's not what it was measuring. It was just something that was noted by the people who were doing the measuring of, huh, this is interesting. Yep. Um, so anyway, that, that's there. Something else I want to talk about a little bit. Uh, I know this episode's running long. Uh, earlier I mentioned that, hey, when you're pre-oxygenating a patient, max out the uh, the regulator. Don't sit it at 15 liters per minute. Uh, and, and here's why. So I want to talk about FIO2 versus volume. Uh, I get this question, uh, from time to time where someone will be like, Hey, how do I convert, uh, liters per minute into FIO2? And it's like, well, you don't, I mean, you, you kind of do. Uh, so here's the thing to remember liters per minute. That's a volume of air over time. FIO2 is basically telling you what percentage of the air someone's breathing in, uh, of that volume is oxygen, right? Mm. Uh, so if you have a patient who's breathing 15 liters per minute, one might think, which, which you know, it would be totally within the realm of possibility uh, that someone breathes 15 liters per minute yeah. um, if they have a bigger lung capacity. So yeah, the average minute volume of, of an adult male is like eight to 12 liters uh, a minute, which um, you might think, all right, well, if I'm giving 15 liters per minute of oxygen, that's 100% FiO2 then, right? Because every, that entire minute, uh, they're going to have 15 liters available. And the answer to that is no. And here's why. Uh, that 15 liters is coming out constantly over that minute. Uh, but your patient is only breathing in every so often. So the volume that's being breathed in is intermittent, right? Mm, because you're mm-hmm. breathing in and you're breathing out. While the patient is breathing out and not inhaling, your 15 liters per minute is still going. Yeah. And so there's a certain percentage of that that they just simply won't breathe in. Uh, so the it's uh, very, very likely. So 
the important thing to, to understand at that point, the more important thing to think about is what's the volume per breath? Okay, so if I'm breathing in, you know, 550 milliliters per breath, if you're not putting out 550 milliliters in the amount of time that I take that breath, which you wouldn't be, um, then then I'm getting some of your oxygen and some of the room air. Okay, so that is why you need to go max out that uh, that oxygen regulator and just let it spill as much oxygen as possible. So that way, no matter how big a breath we're giving the patient uh, or that the patient's taking, it's uh, it's going to be saturated with oxygen. So, yeah, that's just that quick little point there. Uh, The other thing I want to talk about and then I'm kind of done would be synchronized cardioversion. Why do we have synchronized cardioversion for VTAC with a pulse? but we don't have synchronized cardioversion for VTAC without a pulse. And I think a lot of it, it might be kind of confusing, right? Because the reason we do synchronized cardioversion uh, for VTAC with a pulse is that if you land that, that big old shock at the wrong part, you can put the patient into ventricular fibrillation, okay? And so we synchronize so that we don't do what's essentially called a would that be RNT at, yeah, at that point? I think it would yeah, be. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is R on. It's just hard to think about an R wave when we're talking about VTAC. But um, anyway, so, but yeah, it, it's essentially R on T. And what it is, is it's when you apply a shock when half of the heart's defibrillating or a portion of the heart, is, sorry, not defibrillating, when a portion of the heart is depolarizing and the other portion is not. And then you apply a shock because uh, if you apply that shock to a heart that's half depolarized and half repolarized, uh, then you won't have that synchronous contraction that we're looking for that comes with defibrillation. Yeah. You'll have some that will, uh, some mus- uh, muscle cells, cardiac muscle cells that will respond and some that won't. And uh, that is then called ventricular fibrillation. So <laughs> that's why you don't want to do that. So why does it suddenly change when the person has no pulses? And here's the thing, it doesn't change. The same problem actually exists. It's more of an operational concern rather than a clinical concern. Mm. So the problem with synchronized cardioversion in someone who doesn't have a pulse is that if you are wrong and that isn't VTAC and it's coarse VFib, and if you're bored, uh, actually not even if you're bored, go look at uh, rhythm strips of coarse VFib. It can look very much like VTAC or Tussauds, uh, sure. which is a form of VTAC where you have um, – uh, torsades is a form of VTAC where you have the polymorphic um, complexes. And so each of the ventricular beats, uh, they kind of do, it's called <laughs> torsades de pont, stands for uh, twisting. It, it means French for twisting of the points. And what you'll have is you'll have these, um, these complexes that get, you know, they'll be like tall, 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 and they'll get shorter, 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 then tall, 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 tall. And they almost kind of appear to take turns inverting. Okay, and that's called torsades to points. Um, but some there are some coarse VFib can kind of make you think it's torsades. But the problem is, is if it's not VTAC, your monitor won't sync. And if you have a lot of monitors won't sync. Uh, and if you have uh, synchronized sit on your monitor and you go to press a defib button, the way most monitors work is you hold down that defib button until the monitor fires off, mm-hmm. right? So it says sync, you hold down the button until it lets go. Uh, even in cases where you don't hold down the button until it lets go. And some monitors, you press the button and then it will wait for the right moment and send the shock. Uh, even in that case is if you're trying to sync to something that has no complex, then it will never deliver the shock. And so what uh, the preferred, so the preference here is that there is, if you, if someone is in, uh, you know, uh, pulseless VTAC, 
and you shock them and you just so happen to cause that R on T. Like you just, you're unlucky because you didn't synchronize and you happen to cause it. Uh, and then they go into VFib. Well, they're in the same position they were. Yep. Um, but if you miss that shock and you don't deliver it, uh, then they are, uh, they're, they're, I guess they're still in the same position, uh, <laughs> but, but you didn't give them a shock. Cause here's the thing. If you unsynchronize car, attempt to unsynchronize cardiovert, uh, a VTAC, there's still a good chance it's going to work all the same. Yeah. Okay. It's only a problem if it happens to hit that, that one thing. Um, but if you try and synchronize cardiovert something that it can't synchronize to, there's a 0% chance it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> because it yeah. won't deliver a shock. So that is why, uh, that's why it is the way it is. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think if you're a BLS provider, uh, hmm. yeah, CPR, put yeah, in an CPR SGA and, and uh, transport yeah. and uh, get mm -hmm. there quick. Um, yeah. And uh, if you happen to be able to obtain vascular access in your area uh, as a BLS provider, obtain the vascular access. Absolutely. Do it. Follow um, your yeah. local protocols. All right. So here's absolutely. here is the follow up. So the patient was uh, diagnosed with a STEMI. They were transferred up to a uh, that, uh, you know, Ace of Spades hospital. And uh, unfortunately, they went into comfort care. But. They also had a C3 fracture. Um, oh, so, interesting. Yeah, so uh, there's me going like, I wouldn't have cared about the, the, the collar. And then it's like, well, their neck was broken. Oh, yeah. yeah well, yeah, there's yeah, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, with that. Yeah. Which, comfort care for anyone that's not familiar. That's just basically we're not going to try and save their life. We're just going to try and keep them comfortable as they head towards the light. That's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> So, wow. STEMI. So basically the, the, the trauma call was a good one on, uh, on this one. That just goes to show. Yeah. yeah. Hey, not a lot of mechanism, but still had a C3 fracture. And that, that, that's a dangerous fracture too. That's a high level fracture. Yep. And, you know, so, and it's a, I think you made a really solid point to that, you know, which is, I didn't consider, which was, Hey, yeah. The, when they're unconscious at, you know, like, and they're old, like those are a lot of yeah. variables that mean that they're not going to be able to protect themselves. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, uh, hey, well, hey, everybody. Uh, thanks again for listening to another episode of EMS 2020. Be sure to head on over uh, to the uh, Flybridge ED, uh, flybridgeed.com and check out uh, some of their classes, their courses. Uh, you can check out their online courses. They also have some in-class stuff uh, listed on their website uh, as well. Uh, the courses are amazing. Uh, it's what makes smart people smarter. It's all, uh, it's all good stuff. Um <laughs> uh, or like we said earlier, make sure you, uh, you check out, what was it? Sneaky Yeti or uh, so, Sneaky Sasquatch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Give check me out that Apple Sasquatch. Arcade money, Apple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Check out Sneaky Sasquatch and, and learn how to become a, a doctor. doctor. Yeah. Yeah, from Sneaky Sasquatch. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening to yet another episode. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, see you on the next one. Bye. Bye.